for the rest of us, we're going to be looking at the book of Titus today. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Uh, Last week, we took the time to look at the first four verses, the opening verses, which in which Paul gives significant things about himself, uh, about Titus, and about God. He mentions so much about himself so that Titus would follow his example as an apostle, as he ministers on the island of Crete. Um, We used the illustration last week of of Paul kind of uh, putting the steps forward for Titus to follow in the footprints and minister according to what he finds in verses 1 through 4. And of course, the most significant things in verses 1 through 4 are about God and his relationship to both Paul Titus and the island there on Crete. Um, as we come to Titus chapter 1, uh, verse 5, uh, Paul begins to give important important instructions for Titus's ministry on Crete. And he does so starting in verse 5, and there's debate about this, but I think it goes for the whole rest of the book until the conclusion, which would be the last four verses of the book. So the whole body of this a letter, of this letter would be about ministry instructions that Paul gives for Titus to complete what was lacking still on the island of Crete. And so by looking at the content of the body of this letter, we then are afforded a privilege that to me is almost unimaginable. It's like listening in on the instructions that a well-known general gives to one of his commanding officers. Imagine how helpful it might be for some military officer to study instructions that Dwight Eisenhower gave to one of the leading officials as they invaded Normandy. Or perhaps hearing some instructions that Napoleon gave to one of his leading officials. I think any military strategist afforded access to such important historical information like that would be crazy not to study it closely and to learn from it. In our case, however, we are given access to something more than the best military strategies and instructions of all time. In our situation, we have the inspired instructions that Paul, the great missionary and apostle of Christ, gave to his assistant Titus to reach a strategic Mediterranean island with the gospel of Christ. Consequently, we must approach our study of these instructions with vigor and careful consideration because of God's call for us to make disciples of all of the nations. And so I encourage you, Colonials, we approach verses 5 through 9 to lean in with an open and engaged heart and mind to learn more about how to make or how to reach our part of the world for the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul's instructions to Titus involve the original purposes he gave him when he left him on the island of Crete. Titus was left by Paul on Crete 
to accomplish two things, and we can see them very clearly in verse 5. So let's look at verse 5. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that, one, you might put what remained in order, and two, might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, when Paul says in this verse that he left Titus on the island, it suggests that Paul was with Titus on Crete at one time, but that he had left, and now he's asking him to finish the work on the island. And so Paul indicates what this further work is with these two purpose statements in verse 5. First, Titus is to put in order what remained. See that right in verse 5? Put in order what remained. That means literally to straighten out what was unfinished. Okay, now the verb straighten out is an extremely rare verb and adding to the complexity in this sentence. Paul does not inform us of the content of what the remaining things are. We don't exactly know what the remaining things are that Titus need to put in order in the churches across Crete. It most likely includes appointing elders in churches, but I think it goes more than that. Some people think it goes through the end of chapter 1, so it also includes refuting false teachers that were beginning to rear themselves up on the island of Crete and in their churches. That's some of the things that remain. But I think it goes farther than that. I think it also goes into chapter 2 when Paul says that he is to teach sound doctrine regarding how they behave in the house, in the home. He talks about, if you're looking in chapter 2 there, he talks about older men and younger men, older women and younger women, and then he talks about bond servants. And so in chapter 2, what remained to put in order involved teaching this, these new believers in these little churches how to properly behave in their home. And I think it also includes chapter 3. If you look in chapter 3, at the beginning of that chapter, it, it includes how they should relate to people outside of the home, including authorities and submitting to authorities on the island. It includes, uh, like in verse uh, 2, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. And so what we see here is Titus was to complete all of this unfinished business and instruction in the churches of Crete. Now when, when you hear this, I actually read this sermon to some men last night to get their perspective. And one of them said, um, you know, when I see unfinished business, I think that, that sounds bad. Uh, but I think we know, what we need to keep in mind is Paul's great and lofty goals for the island. Okay. He wants to reach every city on the island. He wants to have churches in every city. He wants elders in every city. He wants them properly behaving. Uh, I think that uh, means that there's probably a lot of work to do on Crete, probably still to this day. Put in order what remained. Second, Titus is in verse 5, he is to appoint elders in every city. Now, Crete's population was centered around cities. Remember, there, was, there were many cities. There were tw- at least 20 cities around the perimeter of the island. So his language here shows his lofty goals. And it suggests that Paul desired churches in each of these cities and knew that local church leadership was important for the long-term health of the churches in these cities. As I was reflecting on this uh, the last few days, with, with this amount of unfinished business on the island... 
Paul knows Titus can't do it all himself. He needs to establish local church leaders who can deal with the particular situations, can regulate each church's situation along the way. So in verse 5, he specifically says that Titus is to appoint elders. And uh, we need to take a little bit of time to talk about this position. The word elder was a term that carried over from the synagogue leaders in Judaism. But in the church, it became, it began to be used for the office of a pastor. The office of a pastor. A pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor. As a matter of fact, there are three terms used for this office. Uh, they are usually translated pastor, elder, and overseer. And there are several places in your Bible where, especially, you know, as they're used of the church in New Testament, where those three offices are used interchangeably. Those three words are used interchangeably of one office. So you could read, for instance, in Acts chapter 20 or 1 Peter 5. We're not going to do that today, but you could look that up sometime and you could read and you can see in both of those texts, the biblical authors use the term off, uh, a pastor elder and overseer interchangeably to describe one office. As a matter of fact, in our text, two of those words are used interchangeably. Look, look again at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. So there we have the one term, elder. In every town as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So in giving further instructions about elders, he, he, he uses an alternative description of them, an overseer. An elder is an overseer, an overseer is an elder. Now, if there is a distinction between the terms elder and overseer, it's this. Elder indicates the spiritual maturity that's necessary for this position. Not age, but spiritual maturity. An elder, that's what that indicates. And overseer talks a little bit to the function that these men must perform, must oversee the church, the administration, protection, and care of the church. In our church, Colonial Baptist Church, we presently have five men who serve in this office. We won't have a quiz here today. Some of you are guests, so you might not be able to get them all. Uh, it's me, okay, you're stuck with me, uh, and then four others. Okay, it's Pastor Thomas, Pastor Ben, Pastor James, and Pastor Dan Seeley. Okay, those men are fulfilling this role in our church at this time. You can use any uh, one of these terms to refer to them, biblically. Now, you might want to ask them their preference on what they like to be called. Personally, I prefer Right Reverend Brent. Uh, or a uh, second alternative is Bishop Belford. Uh, either, either of those two. Okay? Um, I'm kidding. Please never do that. But the point I want to make here is an elder is a pastor. A pastor is an overseer. They're all interchangeable. Describe one office and function in the local church. Now, we must learn more about Paul's reason to appoint elders later in this chapter. 
But for now, we're going to see that it's part of the unfinished business on the island for Paul to set up church leadership, or for Titus to do that. After uncovering these two purposes in verse 5, Paul spells out his ministry instruction about elders in greater detail in verses 6 through 9. Matter of fact, I think that verse 5 is like a header, those two purposes. He's going to tell us more about appointing elders in verses 6 through 9. And then he's going to tell us more about straightening out what remains from verses 10 through the rest of the book to the conclusion. Okay? So what we're going to look at the rest of today is just verses 6 through 9, not the whole book. Okay? He spells out more about elders in greater detail in verses 6 through 9. He instructs Titus about the qualities or characteristics of the men to appoint to serve in this position in these churches. Although it's likely that Paul had already directed him. If you look at the verse, end of verse 5, he says, as I directed you. I think Paul already gave these instructions to Titus. But now he writes them out to act as a resource for Titus. And it's to our benefit that he wrote out the qualifications of this position. So as you look at verse 6 and beyond, you could you almost put a colon at the, as I directed you, colon. And you could put quotation marks. This is what Paul had already told him about elders. And when you look at this list, it talks about the nature uh, um, of what to look for in qualified elders, not how to appoint them. It doesn't describe it, just what to look for. And Paul organizes these qualifications, I believe, into four categories. If you're taking notes, he's talking about appointing elders, and I think there are four categories that capture these descriptions here, these qualifications. The sum total of all of them is that the man will be Christ-like. Which, by the way, is the goal of any one of us. It strikes me as we read these qualifications for an elder that it would be good for each one of us to strive to demonstrate these sort of things in our lives. Whether you feel called to a position of an elder or not, whether you're a man or not, or other than the husband of one wife thing for women. But there is a correlating principle there. Although we're going to consider the four categories one after another, uh, prospective elders must demonstrate all four of these to be eligible to serve as an elder on Crete. And so we dig in. First, Titus should appoint only those who are above reproach or blameless at home. That's the first category. Titus should only appoint those who are above reproach or you could translate that blameless at home. Look at verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So I'll just stop here for a second. I think verses 6 and the first half of verse 7 are all talking about the man's relationships in his home. Now, the, word, the words above reproach in the translation I'm reading, as I said, could also be translated blameless, and that's my preference. An older way to kind of also picture this would be use the English word unimpeachable. Unimpeachable. Now, we, we actually live in a time where officials are being impeached. And in our political environment, it's kind of hard to know what to believe about all of this. But there's accusations about different people that would impeach them or remove them from office. But in our situation with elders, they're, uh, 
blamelessness of candidates will not be so difficult to determine. We hold it up, we hold them up to the perfect standard of Scripture to help us know whether they are elder qualified or not. I want to make a few uh, important observations about this first description, above reproach or blameless. Okay, There's a few things I want to say about that. And uh, this comes from my own kind of uh, really thought and, uh, you know, of course I had to consider whether or not I'm qualified to serve as an elder at different times in my life. And so this one's really been challenging for me to think through, above reproach. Here are some of the statements I'll make about this qualification. First, it, it, it is important, above reproach. It is the only characteristic that is repeated twice in the list. You, see, you saw that in verse 6, the beginning of the verse, right? If anyone is above reproach, look at the beginning of verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So whatever this means, blameless, uh, it is truly significant. It's repeated for emphasis. But second, I would say this about this qualification. This qualification of being blameless does not mean that the candidate must be perfect. Right? Because who would ever be able to serve as an elder other than Jesus? It does not mean perfect. As a matter of fact, if Paul wanted to communicate that, he would have words that he could use to indicate, well, an elder must be perfect or without any blemishes or without any flaws. He doesn't do that. He says must be without blame. Uh, Third, this qualification, blameless, also does not mean that the candidate won't face any accusations. I want you to think about this with with me uh, for a while, right? We're digging in, we're leaning in to, to, to learn about this. In the book of First Peter, Peter um, warns the church and reveals that persecution on Christians means that we will inevitably experience accusations of wrongdoing. It's part of the territory as we zealously follow Christ. And so Peter gives instructions for believers to live in such a way that the accusations that actually come against us have no feet upon which to stand. I want to just read two verses from 1 Peter 2 to you. I'm going to read verse 12 and 15, which will just prove this point. Uh, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they will, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The qualification blameless does not mean that the candidate won't ever have anyone make an accusation or criticism against them. Not necessarily. I think it's also very likely that the opponents that Paul and Titus had on the island of Crete not only stood against them doctrinally and theologically, I think it's likely that they had accusations against Paul and his character. What You say, why do I say that? Well, just about everywhere Paul went as an apostle, there were people who were accusing him. Uh, so, for instance, the churches of Galatia, there were people there making accusations about Paul in the city of Corinth. Paul tells us over and over again, some of you, some of them say... And then he talks about himself. Or in um, Ephesus, faced opposition there. Yet the presence of accusations did not disqualify Paul from ministry. 
And so candidates for elder positions might face accusations or criticisms, but it's important to study the nature of those criticisms and accusations and compare the candidate's life with this, with Scripture, to see if he qualifies according to what the Bible says. And that leads me to the last thing I want to say about above reproach, and that is the best way to evaluate whether someone's blameless is to look at the rest of the list of the qualifications. The following qualifications we're going to look look at here, they shed light, more light, on whether someone's blameless. They fill out what it means to be blameless. As a matter of fact, in verses 6 through 7a, I think Paul starts with uh, a, a, a sort of blamelessness that's very important to him. And so that mention in verse 6 and verse 7 about being above reproach, I think is meant as kind of a frame for this first category. And the first place Paul would have Titus look to see if someone's blameless is to look at his home life. Because what's found between above reproach in verse 6 and verse 7 is his relationship with a wife and his relationship with his children. So he's talking about blamelessness at home to begin with here. And so let's look at these. And uh, as we look at these, fair warning here, okay, the first two we're going to look at, we're going to spend a little bit more time discussing, okay, then we're going to pick it up a little bit. So like if you pace it out and you just look at the first two qualifications, husband and one wife, children who are believers, and you know, not open to charges that are mentioned here, you might think, oh man, this sermon is going to take forever. Well, these first two just require a little bit more tension. Uh, the first one is the husband of one wife. This qualification has been taken a number of different ways over the years. Some believe that this first qualification, husband of one wife, means the elder must be married. Or that there's no single elder, single marital, maritally, no single man can serve as an elder. To this we should consider that Paul could have said that a candidate must be the husband of a wife. It's not what he says. He actually says more than that. He's the husband of one wife. Now, to those who limit the office to a single man, I think it would also be consistent for them to limit the office even more to married men who have children, if they're being consistent. That's not the way uh, I understand this at all. Um, Such a restriction only married men, seems unnecessary and not in line with other important texts of Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about the virtue of some believers being called to a life of singleness. Or 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul goes through great lengths to say that he had the right to a wife as an apostle, but it's not something that he did. So Paul, it would be strange for me for Paul to say that he himself would be disqualified from serving as an elder. Not to mention, who am I going to talk about now? Who else was single that we think would probably be able to be qualified to serve as an elder? Jesus. So some believe this means all elders must be married. No single elders. I don't agree with that. Others believe that this husband of one wife means that this qualification removes from consideration men who've been married to more than one woman 
through either divorce or sometimes even, I was reading one person this week who said it disqualified men who've remarried after the death of their former spouse. Taking that last one very quickly, I think it would be very unusual for Paul to be thinking that a man who remarries after the death of his spouse would be blameworthy or blameworthy enough to be able to not serve as an elder, especially, again, with what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 and the permission he gives to men and women who have lost their first spouse to be married again to someone in the Lord. If you look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 39 and 40. And so I don't, I don't think that would hold. I think that the situation, the debate about a man who's been divorced is definitely more a difficult one to think through that would require wisdom from a church and from the leaders in the church. Although to me it seems that Paul's intent is not to deal with that particular issue here either. It seems more likely that Paul demands that candidates for marriage or for uh, eldership have a high view of marriage. That sees husbands and wives as being committed to each other for life. And so the way I take this is uh, whether the candidate is married or not, he must hold a high view of marriage where husbands are one women men. Whether that relates to just the man's theology or to his theology and personal life experience. Okay, so that's the first one I said. It take a little bit of time. Husband of one wife. Uh, the second one is also challenging. It says about his home, his children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That's in the middle of verse 6 there. And again, we run into some difficulties, which can be seen as you just listen to some of the different English translations. So I read the ESV, and it starts out this way. And his children are believers. Okay, whereas if you read the New King James or the King James, it says, having faithful children. Or the Net Bible, similar, with faithful children. Those translations reveal there's a controversy here. The ESV requires elders' children to be converted, to be saved. Whereas the other translations leave it more open and just say something like they need to be faithful. Right? Do you understand that? This is a big controversy with this passage. I said, again, we have to slow down a little bit. Okay, so does an elder's or prospective elder's children need to be converted for them to be able to serve? Or do they need to be faithful? And I think it's a little better to take it the second way, faithful. And then the rest of the text in this verse, tells us what faithfulness means in children. Here, at least what he's talking about. That they're not open or bringing a charge or an accusation of debauchery, which is a word that we don't use very much, right? Debauchery can be translated wildness or outright mutiny. It's used in Luke of the prodigal son. Parable of the prodigal son. He was involved in debauchery, wildness, and outright mutiny. His children also don't bring the charge of insubordination, which means flagrant disregard for authority. That word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the translation, Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used of Eli's sons. They flagrantly disregarded their father's authority and the authority of God. And so the candidates on Crete must be without blame at home. And this is especially true as you keep reading in the text, because these elders will function as household managers for who? 
God's house. They're as God's stewards. If Titus wants to appoint eligible elders, he should take a close look at the man's home. For as Paul says in another letter, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so as I'm looking over these qualifications at the beginning, they involve blamelessness at home. These qualifications go beyond that. I said that there are four ways, four categories. The second one and the third one involve the man's character. The second one's negative things that he won't do. The third one's positive things that he absolutely will or, or has to do to be qualified. And so Titus should appoint uh, only those uh, in middle of verse 7 who spurn or avoid certain vices. So in the middle of verse 7, Paul continues this list with negative characteristics that would eliminate someone from possibly serving as an elder. And we'll go quickly through these. Ready? They include, number one, not being arrogant. This word arrogance here is only used here and in one other New Testament passage and a few times in the Septuagint. The word arrogance here likely speaks of being self-willed or stubborn in his own position. In fact, that other occurrence in the New Testament is 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter, it's used of false teachers who are bold and willful. They are filled with their own self-will and ambitions that lead them to blaspheme powerful angelic beings. They're so confident in their own positions and, and, and authority. These false teachers are blaspheming angels. And so pastors cannot be filled with self-will or arrogance. They must, number two, not be quick-tempered. This means the candidate must not be easily angered. This rare description, again, speaks of someone who's easily triggered and inclined to explosive anger. So, of course, keeping men with quick, quick tri- triggers out of the pastoral office is a very important idea or commitment. Bob Yarborough said it this way. He said, a hothead is unlikely to prosper in the Christian care of souls. As practically speaking, if the man is known as, you know, punching walls or yelling at people, there's no way he should be serving as an elder. Not qualified as a candidate to be an elder. He's not quick-tempered. He's not, uh, not a drunkard. That's the third one here. Not one who's drunken or addicted to alcohol. This, uh, those who often drink to the point of drunkenness should not be trusted to lead in the church because they cannot be trusted to be con- under the control of the Spirit of God versus the control of alcohol. They're also not violent. Again, this is a rare word being only used here. And in 1 Timothy 3, the parallel passage about qualifications for elders, I think it means that this candidate must not be a bully, not one who forces his own way through aggression if necessary. And then finally, the text says, not greedy for gain. This word, these words, greedy for gain, uh, come from two words that are smushed together into one word in Greek. And it means a candidate for an elder must not be zealous for personal gain, and the gain is not really, we're not really told exactly what that gain is. It could be gain of wealth or money. It could be gain of power. It's greedy for power. It could be gain of influence. 
He wants more and more influence. Well, that sort of person is not a candidate for an elder and shouldn't be serving as an elder. Okay, but Paul's focus on character does not stop with what he doesn't do. And in verse 8, uh, we learn some things that indeed through the Holy Spirit must be produced in his life if he is going to serve in this way. Look at verse 8. But, getting here are the positives, six of them, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Um, I don't let, love to quote commentators uh, uh, when I'm preaching a lot. Maybe you say I do that too much. Uh, you, you can talk to me about it some other time. But there's one guy who just really, he made me laugh. I don't laugh when I read commentaries uh, very frequently. Uh, he said it this way. He said, it's not enough that they not be cads and scoundrels. The grace of God, they confess, should have permeated their lives to the point that it produces an array of habits and strengths inherent to mature godliness. Okay, so it's not just we're, we're not just looking for people, well, you're not a scoundrel, so. Okay, but God has to produce these positive things in him by the power of the Spirit as well. These positive things include, one, hospitality. Now, if I were to use the word Philadelphia, uh, you would probably know that it comes from two words, right? And that that city is always, is also called what? City of brotherly love. So the Phila at the beginning is love, and then Delphia is the brother part. Okay, this word is similar to that. It's philozenon. Lover of strangers, strangerly love. And this word came to be used of being a gracious host with one's home. This opening up of one's home was especially important in the first century when it not only spoke about giving accommodations to people who had come through in the night or something, it also spoke of opening your home for the church gathering. And so candidates for elders must be willing to open their homes to others if, you know, with the caveat that they actually have a home. They must demonstrate their love of strangers in other ways as well. Lover of good, that's the next phrase. And this also comes from a compound word with the word love. Candidates should be lovers of good. All throughout the book of Titus, he's been, uh, Paul's been uplifting the good, the good, the good, the good. We should be, uh, we should be um, a model of good works. We should be zealous for good works. We should be ready for good works. We should be devoted, devoting ourselves to good works. And here, an elder is consequently one who loves these good things. He's a lover of these good things. Next, he is self-controlled. This means he controls his own passions. Most of the uses of this word for self-control... 10 out of 16 are found in the pastoral epistles. And so Paul and Timothy and Titus and anyone appointed to serve as an elder must be self-controlled. He must keep himself under control. He continues, he also must be upright. The word upright or uprightness is usually used to describe one's relationship with God, righteous because of Jesus. But in this context, it seems that Paul would think of uprightness as a requirement for pastoral ministry and be speaking that of the fact that he's just and fair in the way he treats other people. 
Next, the candidate must be devout or devoted to God. It's translated holy. It's demonstrated holiness. He's set apart to God in the way that he lives. And then finally, you see this word discipline. This is like self-control earlier in the list, but more specifically emphasizes more than control of the body and appetites. This means candidates for elders must be able to control their bodily passions, including the sex drive, but also things like bodily appetites for food. In other words, men suffering sexual addictions or indulging in unrestrained gluttony are not qualified to serve in the pastoral office. Now, as you go through these lists, you might be asking yourself, what is the point of this? Why these words? Why, are all, why is all this here? And, and my answer in thinking through that is, I think it's these words because these words are thorough in their categorization. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, this talks about the way a man relates to every other person, including himself. Disciplining of the self, mastering the self by the power of the Holy Spirit. Properly related to his home, his wife, children. Uprightness, I think, is properly relating to other human beings. Holy, properly related to God. Discipline, properly related to self. And I think it's also important when you think about why an elder would, why these things must be true of an elder, is an elder is to be an example to the congregation, the members. In not only in what he says or preaches, but also in his example or lifestyle. And so elders must be blameless in the home, blameless in character, avoiding vices, manifesting certain virtues. But there's one other category, verse 9. Look at verse 9. We're almost done. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Finally, candidates for pastoral ministry must be those who have taken hold of God's word. Before consideration for pastoral ministry, these men must value God's word personally. In his practice, this man must affirm the Bible's priority. And the Bible's authority and the Bible's sufficiency in theology and practice. That is, as this text says, he must cling to the word that is described here as being the word that's faithful or trustworthy. So we should not even consider any man for an elder who's not demonstrated his determination to know and use the word for what he believes and how he lives. For faithful elders love the Word of God. It's not just something that they say. It's something that they crave and cherish. It's not just one of the ministry goals and priorities of the pastor. It's fundamental to his whole life and ministry. We talk in this church about the text. The text, the text, the text. To to put it in our context, elders must be text men. People who love and strive to obey the Word of God. 
And this essential commitment to God's word makes them able to do two things in the text, uh, to instruct and refute. To give instruction and sound doctrine. Elders who know the word well are enabled to teach truth to others. This purpose of instruction remind elders of one of their most fundamental commitments. And uh, we learn in another text that the ones who labor well in the word like this are worthy of double honor. Candidates for the ministry of elder must cling to God's word because elders will have to go into the kitchen week after week and prepare meals for the congregation. Sometimes they'll have to go in their study uh, to prepare for three or four occasions, which, I, by the way, I try to avoid <laughs> weekly. Although it's not just in the pulpit. It's in teaching. In the classroom. It's it's uh, proclaiming the word clearly and accurately at a funeral. It's proclaiming it clearly and accurately at a wedding or in counseling. To give instruction and sound doctrine, and then elders who know the word well are also able to refute error or false teaching or false teachers who are polluting the church. Now, we'll learn more about this in our next sermon on the end of chapter 1. Paul, give us more here. But today we simply note that this is a requirement of elders. And they have to do this, refute false teaching and false teachers, even if it's not fashionable in a culture. I'm so glad this part is here as a reminder to me, because this is a part I don't really like to do as an elder. But there are times when I or any pastor, elder, need to stand against false teaching if it's polluting the church of God. And so, um, they need to know the word well so they can instruct and reprove. And I'm so glad for 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, which we read today. That reminds us, like when I don't know how to do it, I don't know how to give instruction in a certain area, or I don't know how to refute false teaching. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for what? For teaching and for reproving. There are two other things there as well. But it's profitable for these things so that the servant of God, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, uh, here I, I, I close in this way. Paul gives all of these characteristics to reveal to Titus when he has found an acceptable candidate to serve as an elder in the churches of Crete. And these qualities help us too, men and women. They help us know when we're working with someone who is a candidate to serve as an elder So, colonial, when we see someone who is blameless in in his home, someone who refuses to practice vices like arrogance or a quick temper or violence, greed for influence or power, when we see someone who produces virtues like loving good and others and self-discipline or self-mastery, and we see someone who is clinging to, to God's trustworthy word, we can say, look, 
there goes an elder. Or, Lord willing, we would be able to say this about our church. It's only through God's grace, but we would say, look, there goes one of my pastors. Or we might say, look, there goes a candidate of someone who might be able to serve as an elder in the church. These identifying characteristics strike me as something very important for our church, a church that desires to plant other churches, and a church who partners with a seminary to prepare candidates to serve in local churches. And so may God help us find and train elders that meet these qualifications. These important ministry restrictions come from God himself to us. We must follow them as we look to appoint elders as well. Let's pray together. Father, you know that often I do not feel worthy to be a pastor. This is not something new to you. But Lord, I know I'm qualified at this point because of what Jesus has done for me. For the things he produces. Lord, I know any man who would stand in the office of a pastor, an elder, would be one that you through your Holy Spirit has produced good things. And has helped them to avoid what their flesh wants. And so, uh, we thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for using sinful men and women. But in this case, sinful men to serve in capacities like this that you will empower and strengthen to be able to meet these qualifications. And Lord, we just pray uh, that you would uh, help us as a church to be willing to follow the Scripture, especially as we look to the training of elders for pastoral ministry. Help us, Lord, make these things a priority. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to raise up men who could serve with integrity, men who cling to your word. And we would thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.